0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to this week's episode of Jumping with Jumi. I am your host, Jumi, and I'm so excited that you all are here on the BlackDoctor.org platform because it is going to be another incredible conversation. I'm so excited that you're joining me. If you're here, let me know where you're tuning in from, from the East Coast to the West Coast and all of the wonderful states in between. Thank you, thank you, thank you for tuning in today. As you know, this is March, and it is Women's History Month. This month, I wanted to bring you topics that impact women. So, a lot of women's health topics. And today, we are starting with a subject that is the leading cause of death in women in America, and that is heart disease. Did you know that heart disease claims the lives of more women every year more than breast cancer? All right, let me give y'all some facts, real quick. Yes, I'm about to give y'all some real facts. So, Heart disease is the leading cause of death for women in the US. One woman dies every 80 seconds from heart disease. Cardiovascular disease kills nearly 50,000 African-American women annually. 49% of African-American women over the age of 20 have cardiovascular disease. Let me read that again. 49% of African American women over the age of 20 have cardiovascular disease. Yet only 36% of us know that heart disease is one of our greatest health risks. So that is why we're talking about this topic today. You know, it's one of those things that we need to be fully aware of that we can no longer ignore. And I'm so excited that our guests today are going to be dropping. Facts telling us about risk, the symptoms, what we should be looking out for, how to prevent it. It is gonna be such a great conversation. So thank you again for joining. Before we bring on our guests, I do wanna know something and see what you all know about heart disease and what we need to be looking out for. So before we get started, tell me, do you think that being physically fit eliminates your risk for having heart disease? Put it in the chat. Let's talk about it. I won't give you the answer now. We won't talk about it yet, but we will bring it up later in the chat. So again, do you think that being physically fit eliminates your risk for having and heart disease? We'll talk about it later. Put it in the chat. Let me know where you're tuning in from. Make sure you share this broadcast because you want your people to tune in make it a watch party. All right, y'all. Okay. So now let me introduce our two guests. Our first guest is Dr. Rea Sinkasani. She is a board certified cardiologist and the medical director at the Jackson Health Health System Cardiology Ambulatory Clinic in Miami, Florida. She received her medical degree at the University of Miami Miller School of Medicine where she also did her residency in internal medicine and a cardiovascular disease fellowship. She is a member of the Association of Black Cardiologists, currently serves on the board of directors for the Florida chapter of the American College of Cardiology and also serves as a mentor for the Black female medical students at the University of Miami Medical Center. Sorry, University of Miami School of Medicine. So this is Dr. Senkasani. And so our second guest is Dr. Rachel Bond. Dr. Rachel Bond is a board certified attending cardiologist in Arizona who has devoted her career to the treatment of heart disease through early detection, education and prevention. She is a women's heart health and prevention specialist and the author of several review papers referencing maternal health, sex, and gender differences in cardiovascular conditions that predominantly affect women. Dr. Bond is also a fellow of the American College of Cardiology and a member of the American Society for Preventative Cardiology, the Association of Black Cardiologists, and the American Heart Association, where she is a national spokesperson for the Go Red for Women campaign, where she also sits on their board of directors. Please join me in welcoming both Dr. Bond and Dr. Sankasani. Hi, how are you? Thank you. Thank you so much for joining Dr. Sankasani, Dr. Bond. It's so great to see you all here. It's uh, wonderful to be here. We look, we're both looking forward to this. (laughs) Yes. Yes, Thank thank you you for having
1: us.
0: (laughs) Thank thank you. So Dr. Sankasani, if you wanted to start and give the viewers a little bit of information about you and what you do in your role as a cardiologist.
1: Sure, so hello everyone, everyone joining from, from uh, I'm coming into you from Miami. So if you're on the East Coast, you're on my time zone. Um, I'm a non-invasive cardiologist. I work here in Miami at Jackson Memorial Hospital, which is a large tertiary care public center, um, public hospital. We're probably one of the largest public hospitals in the country. So serving a wide variety of races, demographic backgrounds, uh, economic and cultural backgrounds as well. Um, I work mostly in the ambulatory setting uh, all the way to the ICU, and I take care of a wide variety of patients, patients who are healthy and have risk factors for heart disease or may have had heart disease in their family and are wondering what their risk is and how they can lower that, all the way to people who have suffered from heart attacks, uh, heart failure. I know I see people in the group already commenting that, you know, their age and that they've had heart failure or they've had a heart attack. You're the exact patients I take care of. Uh, one of my passions is also uh, training and teaching the next generation of doctors. So that's why I have stayed at the University of Miami at Jackson Memorial Hospital and hope to pass on this knowledge to to future generations so we can help patients improve their overall health and decrease the prevalence of cardiovascular disease. Because Jumi, that, that statistic you you said, especially about black women, 49% over the age of 20 with some form of cardiovascular disease is scary. And that's a number we need to, to work together to bring down.
0: Definitely. Definitely. Thank you so much. Dr. Bond, can you tell us a little bit about about you and your work? Yeah, absolutely. So I, as well as
2: Dr. Sankasani had mentioned, I'm a non-invasive cardiologist too. Um, I'm actually the system director of one of our larger health systems in Arizona. Um, What that means for me is I oversee three to four hospitals in our women's cardiovascular program. And a large part of our program is focused on prevention. But beyond that, we are also making sure that we're providing uh, appropriate and equitable care for our patients as well. As we will be talking about, a lot of times women may present with more atypical symptoms. So some in certain situations, the services of our particular program is definitely necessary. And we do a lot of co-management not even with other uh, specialties, but even within the spectrum of cardiology. Beyond that, I do have the opportunity to be most recently appointed the co-chair of the Association of Black Cardiologists for our Women and Children's Committee. And a big part of that is making sure we improve the pipeline of women of color and just people of color in general to the cardiovascular field. When we think about the statistics, we know that black women in medicine only make up about 2% of the population. So it's actually amazing that we have two black female cardiologists on this uh, program today, but the goal of my myself and I'm sure Dr. Sankasani as well is to get our faces out there. So we encourage others to join actually this field because it is the leading cause of death, but we need to make sure that we diversify it and we're actually taking care of the patient population and those that are taking care of the patient population can identify and empathize with that patient population. So that's a little bit of what I do.
0: Absolutely. Well thank you. I am super excited that you know you're two African American mm-hmm. women here talking about things that this condition that impacts us so intensely. And like you're really going to help us unpack it. And we can really feel like you understand <laughs> what's going on with this. So <laughs> I know there's a term there's a cardiovascular disease, there's heart disease, there's coronary art, there's so many different terms that are out there. Can you Tell us where all of those lie and what we should really know about each one of those terms, starting from cardiovascular disease, heart disease, stroke, heart attack, where does everything lie and how what should we know about each one of those
1: terms? Um, sure, I can I can start off on that topic. So cardiovascular disease is referring to any disease that can affect the heart and the blood vessels, which if you think about it, the blood vessels go to every single organ. So cardiovascular disease is quite wide ranging. Um, I try to liken when you say cardiovascular disease to saying I'm buying a car. Well, there's different types of cars, right? Just like there's different types of cardiovascular disease. When people say cardiovascular disease and heart disease, usually they're meaning the same thing. Cardio is the the medical term we use for heart. So cardiovascular disease encompasses heart disease itself. The most common type of heart disease people think about when they say, oh, I've had heart disease in my family or I have heart disease myself is usually coronary artery disease, which is the blockages that occur in the arteries of the heart that lead to things like chest pain or angina or heart attacks. Um, There's other types of heart disease as well. Things such as congestive heart failure, high blood pressure, or hypertension is a very common cardiovascular risk factor. Um, stroke falls into this category as car- of cardiovascular as well because it involves the blood vessels in the brain. Uh, diseases of the aorta, um, people who have diseases in the heart valves and need valve replacements. So cardiovascular disease is kind of an all-encompassing term. And then there's several different subcategories under that that can, that can actually cause issue. But the most common one that people think about is coronary artery disease or blockages in the arteries of the heart that develop and can lead to things like heart attacks. So
0: thank you for that. And I guess one of the things I want to get into is why we don't realize how important it is to, like, why don't we understand how important heart disease is? Like, why aren't we aware of the risk posed to us? Like, I read a statistic that was saying that 10 years ago, 66% of people knew, or 66% of women knew that heart disease was an issue. And that's gone down to like 44% now. What is going on with that? Yeah, that's a wonderful question. And the statistic you're referring to
2: is a study that the American Heart Association actually released in 2019. And I was actually really surprised to see that that statistic had steadily declined. But the fact is, is that it's not just the community that doesn't have that awareness, it's also clinicians. And that's, I think, to me, more daunting. So when we think about really the risk and the threat of women, a lot of times women think it's breast cancer. And when you wanna actually put it into statistics, we know that about one in 31 women will die of breast cancer, but one in three will die from heart disease. Beyond Mm -hmm. that, we as clinicians have to do a better job in having these conversations with our patients such earlier on. And that's really the emphasis, earlier the better, because what is so impactful about heart disease is that it's something we could prevent 80% of the time. And I think a lot of people don't realize that. What makes it preventable 80% of the time is really those modifiable risk factors, the blood pressure, your blood, sugar, your cholesterol, if you smoke or drink alcohol in excess, or if you're exercising or not exercising most notably, that is really what makes heart disease 80% of the time preventable. And when we think about women in general, again, even in medicine, as I alluded to, a lot of times the focus is so much on the breast or the reproductive system. It's actually a term that we call bikini medicine, where you focus in on those particular vital organs without actually acknowledging the most vital organ, which is their greatest threat. So that's where these awareness campaigns come in. That's where even doing these amazing sessions that you're doing um, come into play where we can get that awareness out there and educate the community.
0: So let's talk about those risk factors. There are risk factors that we can change and risk factors that we can't change. So let's start with the ones that we can't change. What are some risk factors specific to women that can't be changed when it comes to cardiovascular disease?
1: Well, the one the biggest risk factor that we can't change is our genetics, right? It's too late to change a
0: so you've already been
1: born with this DNA and there are certain parts of heart disease that is genetic. And that's, a, that's kind of a hotbed topic in medicine, trying to figure out and understand the genetics of heart disease. And is there any way we can do anything about that? Right now, that's not really what we focus on. So there's a certain part of heart disease that you inherit from your parents, um, particularly in women, right? Uh, on, early onset of menopause, um, longer years of, of, you know, can can increase the risk of heart disease. There's also pregnancy related factors that are specific to women such as hypertension during pregnancy or preeclampsia or or eclampsia that increase the risk of heart disease specifically in women um, that obviously doesn't affect men at all. Uh, So there, there are certain risk factors that we can't control. But as Dr. Bond said, the vast majority of cardiac risk still falls within our control, right? We control whether we smoke or not. That's an absolutely conscious decision. We can control what we put in our mouth and what we eat and how we control our blood pressure and how vigilant we stay on monitoring things like your blood pressure and your sugar and your weight. So a lot of these things are within our control and can be modified. And you have to concentrate on that because you can't change what you can't change, right? So we can't change our parents. As I said, you can't change that inherent risk, Um, but there are definitely a lot that we can do uh, and that's within our control. So that's really the important part to focus on
0: to focus on the ones, the things that we can change. So yeah. if we wanted to go more into that, Dr. Bond. What do, What can somebody do? I, I read, I did read something about this and I, I wonder if it's true. If we, somebody was smoking right now and then they quit, how much of an impact, if they quit today, how much of an impact would that have in a month, two months? Like that's something we can change today. How, tell, tell us what goes along, goes on with that.
2: Yeah, and I think the importance beyond just What can we do is also highlighting the effects that a lot of these traditional and modifiable risk factors um, have on us based on our gender. So women, as an example, if you are a female who smokes the same amount of cigarettes for the same duration, you're actually at a 25% higher risk of having a heart attack or stroke compared to your male counterpart who's smoking the exact same amount as well as the same duration as you beyond Wait, that,
0: though,
2: why is it <laughs> yeah so and well beyond that though it is important to highlight that if you stop smoking you have the ability to actually decrease your risk to that of somebody who was actually the same risk as not somebody who has never smoked in their life and we see that within the year of you stopping and putting that cigarette down and it's not even cigarettes we have to think about vaping right that's mm-hmm. something obviously that's an epidemic right now in our younger population. But all of those um, materials that are getting into our lungs, if you're able to get them into your lungs, even secondhand smoke being a factor as well, it's not only getting into the lungs, it's getting into the blood vessels. And it's causing those blood vessels to become weaker and weaker, and more vulnerable to that plaque, which is fat building up in the arteries. So it's highly important that we acknowledge this start very early and make sure that we're educating, again, the community. Beyond just smoking, the other risk factors that do disproportionately affect women much greater than men include obesity. Beyond that, it includes elevated blood pressure um, and things of that nature. So that's why it's very important that we're very mindful of these risks, but most notably that we're doing all of the things we can to reduce them. And that's where your clinician comes into play because they can help you, be it lifestyle, changing your diet, exercising more, and if necessary, starting you on a medication. But for me, it's always about that conversation. Start with the basics. Yeah. You, can, you can honestly control what you eat. As Dr. Sankasani said, beyond that, you could also control your energy and your exercise. And that could be very impactful in controlling a lot of these traditional risk factors.
0: Why is it so undiagnosed? undiagnosed so um infrequently in women and like why do men report symptoms more frequently than
1: women when it comes to heart disease so the topic of women (laughs) the topic of women and how women show their heart disease compared to men is i always say women we always got to do things differently right Mm -hmm. this is not one of those times where that's an advantage so if you open a textbook or you go on google and you ask well what are the symptoms of heart disease you're probably going to see a picture of an older white man having his hand to his heart wow. um, he's having chest pain. That That's not necessarily the case always for women. Yes, women can have chest pain. And if you're having chest pain or pressure on the chest or tightness on the chest, especially when you're doing activity or effort, that's really a concern. But a lot of women will just say that they're feeling more tired than usual. Their ability to do the things they used to do a few months ago or a year ago has changed because they have no more energy. They're more fatigued. Um, they may not have pain or pressure on the chest, but they may feel short of breath or winded when they're walking or doing activity, or they may just feel pain in the jaw or in the neck area when they're doing activity specifically. So women don't always, you know, read the textbook. We don't always follow the rules and have, you know, chest discomfort and and everything that the book says we're supposed to. So if you're feeling symptoms that that you know. That seems different for you. You see a change in your body. You see a change in your energy level. You see a change in your ability to do things that you used to previously be able to do. That should be a red flag. And I hear a lot of times people say, well, everybody's tired, right? We're all tired. We're all fatigued. We're all overworked. Yes, that's true. But if something is changing in you, you will know the difference whether something is just life stress versus potentially a, a real health condition that you need to worry about. But I still say to patients, I, I would rather you come and see me and us have a discussion, and everything at the end of the day turns out to be fine, then you waiting and assuming that this is probably okay, um, and you don't wanna bother your doctor, which I, I always hear that, and I go, no, bother me, that's what I'm here for, <laughs> please. Yeah. Um, and, and figuring out if you're healthy, versus finding out later on that you had a heart attack, that you weren't, you know, that you you sat home and, and suffered through without coming in for treatment.
0: And that's really important, I think, especially now with obviously everything going on yeah. in um, our current society, but, you know, going into a doctor, people maybe are afraid to go, into, not afraid, but they don't want to go into a doctor. They don't want to see somebody and they're experiencing these symptoms at home. Like, what do you say to those people who don't want to go into a hospital, or go to their primary care physician because of COVID concerns?
2: Yeah, so heart attacks don't stop during a pandemic, right? And that's what we really need to get the message out there. One thing is, is that every hospital across this country, and honestly, this world, is has the infrastructure in place to maintain our operation. When you're thinking about possibly you're at risk of a heart attack, Based on the symptoms that you're presenting with, that chest pain or any of the other atypical symptoms that we just described, you want to make sure if they're perseverating that you get that immediate care. When we think about the heart, we always say that, you know, that time is muscle, meaning the sooner we get you to do a procedure that could be life-saving called an angiogram, if you're having a heart attack where we're able to open up that blocked vessel, the better the outcomes will be. The lower your risk of death, the lower your risk of poor complications in the future. So with this pandemic, despite all of that we're dealing with in the hospital, we have all of the infrastructure in place and it's very important for you to make sure that you're getting that immediate care. Beyond that, one thing I did wanna address is, as you mentioned, Junie, a really important part is that women present with these atypical symptoms. The fact is, is that they do also present with these classic symptoms, the classic feeling an elephant is sitting on your chest. It's just okay. about a third of the time that they present with those atypical symptoms of maybe tiredness or you know indigestion or back pain or jaw pain. The reason behind that has a lot to do with the different pathophysiology or causes of heart disease. And when we think about men, we know that for the most part, their disease is usually dedicated to one singular vessel or at least a discrete area of disease or plaque. A lot of times women may have more um, lumpy, bumpy uh, plaque that builds up in one or a few singular arteries. And that's what makes it very difficult at times for us to diagnose it. You need to have a high, heightened suspicion. But beyond that, you need to make sure that if you have any of those risk factors that we highlighted, and these symptoms are ongoing and perseverating, that you don't ignore them. Um, as you know, I completely agree. I'd rather have that conversation with my patient and provide them that reassurance than actually miss something major that could lead to a heart attack in the future.
1: Yeah. Do
0: you feel like um, more? Oh, go ahead, Dr. Kasankasani.
1: I was going to also say as well, you were asking specifically about, about COVID and, and, you know, as Dr. Bond said, heart attacks didn't, didn't magically go away. There was a time where people weren't coming to the hospital. Mm. And we didn't see the amount of heart attacks we saw in our hospital went down dramatically. And we said, well, where did the heart attacks go? Well, the heart attacks stayed home because people were afraid of COVID and people were dying at home from heart disease.
0: Mm.
1: Fast forward to where we are now in March of 2021. All our offices have adapted to to the pandemic. Everyone is wearing masks. We're limiting our patients that can be in the office at the same time. Uh, we're requiring everyone to, to be socially distant. We're separating our, our chairs and waiting rooms. The vast majority of our staff in our hospital have been vaccinated. So I would say it's safer to come to your doctor's office than it is to probably go to the supermarket, right? Um, and, and so I would encourage people, don't be don't be discouraged right now because of COVID and the pandemic from coming to your doctor. If anything, you're just as safe, if not safer, coming to your doctor's office than going out in the general public, okay? so. If you're having those symptoms that are of concern, please come and get evaluated. We're here for you throughout the pandemic and hopefully on into the future. So, And I
0: definitely want to re-emphasize that it's like, do not sit at home and wait for things because like they're saying, especially for women, we present differently, you know, and it's something that I know somebody has put in the chat, you know, they just thought that it was related to menopause that they were tired, but you just never know what is going on with your body when it comes to something of this significance, So that does bring me to a question. What is the relation between menopause and heart disease? Can you all talk about that?
2: Yeah, so that's that's actually a great question. And we know that the earlier you have menopause, the higher your risk of heart disease will be in the future. And the way we define early menopause is really above the age of 45. Why is that? So the estrogen that our body naturally produces when we're actually in our reproductive years, it helps to relax the arteries. It also helps to keep our cholesterol in check, our blood sugar in check. And typically when we lose that estrogen after menopause, everything wreaks havoc. And it's not necessarily meaning that, oh, well, should we take hormone therapy? No, not necessarily, and actually this has been looked at and it remains controversial and it's a conversation to have with your provider. We know that hormone therapy right now is ideal for patients that are having those common menopause symptoms, those hot flashes and things of that nature or the fatigue that menopause may bring. Beyond that, we would never start a patient on hormone therapy to reduce their risk of cardiovascular disease Reason being is doing anything as simple as walking or eating healthy is a healthier and easier and less riskier way to do that. But the importance of understanding that estrogen that our body naturally produces really help to keep those arteries less stiff, help that cholesterol metabolize and our blood sugar, et cetera. And once we lose that after menopause, that's really where we start to see the higher rates of cardiovascular disease
0: compared to women that are pre-menopausal. Thank you. Um, Dr. Tinkasani, did you want to add to that at all?
1: No, I think you said it all. I think one (laughs) of the the main things with with menopause as well that we see is that the, the changes in the cholesterol That we can see on your blood work really makes a difference. So if you're in that perimenopausal phase, like someone mentioned in the chat that you're experiencing fatigue and you're going through menopause, super important to go to your doctors and and reevaluate your blood cholesterol levels because a lot of those change and also your blood pressure and make sure that as your body's going through these hormonal changes, that things like your blood pressure stay under control and that your cholesterol levels stay where they need to be. And this is the time where there's going to be changes. So it's important to follow up and get checked.
0: Do you feel like cardiologists or any of the primary care physicians are a little more culturally competent when it comes to receiving a black patient and saying, okay, there's certain things that are going on in their lives that might be leading to the, that might be increasing their risk for heart disease um, and they can start to help them put together a plan of action for reducing that risk. Do you feel like that's happening or how can we feel comfortable? We don't see a cardiologist or a doctor that looks like us and having those
1: conversations. Um, I, I think this is uh, this was an important topic because, I, like Dr. Vaughn said earlier, one of my passions is training and, and mentoring. And I started with the Student National Medical Association, mentoring young Black females in medicine. And uh, a few years ago, there was there were slim pickings uh, in terms of Black women who were in medical school. In my class, I was fortunate. I think I had four or five in my class, and that was considered a lot. Um, right. How many of those women go into cardiology? I was the only one. Um, I was fortunate to train with three other black female cardiologists and that was a lot. So we need to increase the amount of black women going into medicine. Uh, and specifically into our field in cardiology, because you're correct. If a black woman walks into my office, I can tell you there's a certain level of confidence and ways that they talk with me that they wouldn't necessarily talk with my other colleagues. Um, and I'm, I'm happy for that. I'm happy to be able to bring that, that familiarity, that, that sense of, I know what you're meaning when you say certain things, certain ways, when you talk about what you're eating. You know, working here in South Florida, I'm from the Caribbean, there's a huge Caribbean population. So it's really important to have that relation, to know about their foods and to know about, you know, the way that people may eat differently in different cultures. Um, to be able to help them. Because it's for, easy for me to say, eat healthy, but if I don't know what your foods are and I have no clue what your culture is, that may be a little bit harder to give you practical advice. Um, so I think recruiting more Black women into medicine, um, and, you know, that's a whole other set of discussions that we, <laughs> yeah. that we can go through. Um, yeah. you know, I, I do think that, that having more women that can understand and be more culturally competent is really important. Not to say that that can't be accomplished with our, with our you know, non-Black female colleagues. I just think it makes it a lot easier and more more comfortable for patients.
0: It's a comfort level, definitely, definitely. And and
2: just, sorry, just beyond that though, just having that diversity in the workforce, actually uh, studies have shown improves the quality of outcomes in those that are not diverse, right? So our male colleagues, or even our non-African American colleagues, as long as they have the ability to engage with colleagues that are of that particular uh, gender or race, their outcomes get better. So I do think that that diversification is so important um, just beyond that. And even to that point, when we think about what is causing cardiovascular disease to be the leading cause of death and why it's disproportionately affecting some populations beyond others, we know that 60% of it has a lot more to do with the social determinants of health, right? It's not genetics as Dr. Sankasani mentioned, that is a small factor, but it's really the access to quality care, the access to healthy living, the access, the ability for you to exercise in a safe community. So that I think is something that we are working on, even at a medical school level to really reinforce. And we know a lot of that centers at the end of the day on structural racism, which of course is its own policy that we have to obviously highlight. And that's a whole nother out. (laughs) But I do think it's important for the audience to realize that as well.
0: So you touched on that in um, the social determinants and just like your neighborhood where you grew up. And so I, and you mentioned exercise. And one thing I think that first of all, we have so many people that are from all over. You know, we've got people from Texas, from Philly, from the ATL, from DC. Thank you all so much for joining. People answered the question of whether or not they think that being physically fit eliminates their risk for heart disease. So which one of you all want to tackle this question and let us know what's really the truth behind this? Does being physically fit eliminate our risk for heart disease?
1: Well, we wish we had the magic bullet to eliminate the risk (laughs) of heart disease. I think it definitely helps. So by being physically active and exercising, you will help to combat a few things. One, you'll help with weight loss, right? One of the bigger risk factors that we consider one of those modifiable risk factors especially amongst black women is obesity and we've seen the rates of obesity you know we talk about we know about the COVID pandemic but there's the obesity epidemic within our country and if you look back into the into the 1990s the rates of obesity were less than 15 percent now on average we're talking about 30 something percent so by being more physically fit and being more active you can decrease your weight or control your weight a bit more and that can help decrease your risk of heart disease also being physically active helps to lower your blood pressure, right? So, so exercising, yes, while you're actively exercising, your blood pressure increases, but once you rest and relax and become more conditioned, you know, somebody mentioned in the in the chat that you know, how can they expect to be exercising when you walk to the mailbox and you get chest yeah. pain and shortness of breath? Yeah. Well, if walking that short of a distance gives symptoms, come and get checked out, right? You need to have a proper evaluation and make sure that that's not underlying heart disease. But if you're not someone who's physically active or used to exercising, gonna hurt in the beginning, it's not gonna feel good, but conditioning yourself and doing it repetitively, you'll get that those symptoms will improve if it's not related to underlying heart disease. Um, And also being physically active will help to decrease things like your blood cholesterol, helps you process glucose metabolism a little bit better. So being physically fit does not eliminate the risk of heart disease, but it definitely helps to decrease some of the risk factors or control some of the risk factors a bit better, which will overall be beneficial for you in the long term. Thank you.
2: And that brings up, I think, a really important question and comment that was in the area that asked what about belly fat. So mm-hmm. we know that a lot of times you can be physically fit. And it's really where the fat gets distributed that factors in, right. So when we think about it, we think about something called apple shaped versus pear shapes, apple shaped meaning that the fat distributes more in the waist or the belly, whereas the pear shape is more in the hips. And we know that that actually does have those particular people, especially women, have lower rates of cardiovascular disease if the fat is distributed in their hips versus their belly. And why is that? The fat in the belly tends to be very... Um, reactive. It tends to secrete a lot of inflammatory markers. And we know that heart disease at the end of the the day is an inflammatory process. And where are those inflammatory markers going directly to the heart, which is so close to the belly. So it's really important for you to check your waist circumference. That's not something we routinely do in the doctor's office, but it should be done at least once a year, because it is suggested that women should have a waist circumference less than 35 inches and a male less than 40 inches. And that would place you at a lower risk of having
0: cardiovascular disease in the future. Okay. Well, so we have our answer, y'all. Like it won't eliminate it. There's no magic pill to eliminate it, but it will reduce your risk. So can we talk about food for a second? Right? Okay. So I like to eat and I know a lot of people love to eat. And I read that there's a gene that African-Americans have that makes us more sensitive to salt and that in turn can increase our risk for heart disease. Um, What's up with that?
2: (laughs) (laughs) So that's actually something called gene theory and that has been disproven through a lot of research. And one, the reason behind this gene theory is that it was thought that our ancestors during the Middle Passage when they came in order to survive they have the ability to retain salt. And because of that, that somehow was genetically brought down from generation to generation. We know at the end of the day that is not accurate. That being said, we know that there are particular patient populations like Black Americans uh, that do have usually higher rates of what's called salt-sensitive high blood pressure. And it's for that reason, we know that it's encouraged that we limit our salt intake. Beyond that, we may put you on specific medications that help to kind of regulate the salt and other electrolytes in our system. But one thing that's important to highlight is that the vast majority of what leads to these higher rates of high blood pressure, another term being hypertension, again, has less to do with genetics, but more to do with those social determinants that we're seeing that access to healthy food, that ability to have access to areas where you can safely exercise and more importantly that quality relationship where you have good health literacy with your health care provider so that gene theory is it, it has been disproven and i do think it's something that's important for us to acknowledge
1: it's okay. it's just not real it's not a real thing wonderful <laughs> but that being said right she did say that we are that salt sensitivity is really important right so the amount of salt we take in, in our diet um, does affect our blood pressure significantly. And, you know, you all know this, if you go and you eat a very like heavy salty meal, right? The shoes don't fit as well, the shoes (laughs) sweat. Um, My ring doesn't fit as well, right? You got to put it on and off. So yeah, so people can be, when you're you're eating more salt, you're going to retain more fluid and that can manifest in swelling in the legs or et cetera and can also manifest by increasing your blood pressure. So the recommendation is to keep your salt intake usually below 1,500 milligrams of salt a day. If you read packaging, right, you pick up a can of something or you pick up a loaf of bread and you read how much salt is in it, that 1,500 milligrams a day adds up really, really quickly. So I usually encourage people to really educate themselves, especially people with high blood pressure. I'm seeing in the chat, there's a lot of people saying that they've been diagnosed with congestive heart failure super, super important for you to keep track of what you're eating and what the salt content is of it. Um, the more salt you, you take in, in your diet, the more the more your blood pressure is going to be higher, the more you're going to retain fluid and have issues with, with, with heart failure. Um, and, and, you know, keeping salt down is, is, is not as easy as you think. You know, there's so much hidden salt in food. Anything that is preserved in a can, anything that is frozen, anything that has shelf life, right? How do you think it stays there? They got to preserve it somehow. <laughs> preservative is salt. So I tell people stay away from the canned vegetables and canned etc or frozen foods or frozen this. Go for things that are fresh and more natural that don't have this packed in salt to to be preserved. Um that can eliminate a huge amount of salt intake that you don't even realize that you have.
0: Well that that's real because yes those those packaged things they taste real good and they're real easy to eat, but they'll get you down the ride. So <laughs> Make sure you check, read the labels, everybody. Read the labels. So now we know more of like the risk and the symptoms. When it comes to treatment and care, there's obviously like someone has to get on medications what are the different interventions and medications that are available? And how do they interact with our bodies as, African-American, as African-Americans, as women? Like, are there certain things that we will experience that somebody else might not with the medication that we're put on?
2: Yeah, so it really depends on what the underlining um, condition is when it comes to cardiovascular disease. I wanna preface this by saying that we always encourage our patients to start with lifestyle. So, lifestyle, meaning eating healthy, someone commented on is a plant based uh, diet beneficial for heart disease? And the answer is yes, a plant predominant diet, without a question, is. Beyond that, though, we are encouraging exercise. And that exercise really could be something as simple as 30 minutes five days a week of briskly walking, because that's equivalent to moderate, ex- moderate cardio. Now, if you are diagnosed with cardiovascular disease, meaning you had a heart attack or a blocked artery, either in your heart or even in your legs, and you required a procedure, standard medications then include a baby aspirin. Beyond that, we're gonna get you on a medication that helps to lower your cholesterol beyond a, l- a level where it's actually even lower than what would be ideal or normal. What that medication beyond does, not just lowering your cholesterol, is it helps to reduce that inflammation. And as I mentioned, heart disease is an inflammatory process. One thing that I wanna note though, is that it's not that these medications are better suited in different patient populations, it's just that they're less aggressively prescribed in women as well as people of color. And that's something that, again, from a societal perspective, we have to do a better job at doing. Just to give you a few examples, if you're a female who presents to the emergency room and you present with signs and symptoms of a heart attack, you are less likely to be considered. And there may be a delay in you getting that procedure, which is called an angiogram, where again, where we identify that blockage and we're able to open it up and fix it. But beyond that, you're also less likely to receive that baby aspirin or a medication for your cholesterol and beyond. And that's something that, again, we have to work at um, a little bit better in the medical field. But it's definitely something that you as a community need to understand and highlight to make sure that you could advocate for yourself and that your doctors are giving you everything that they should be giving it to you, uh, uh, be it you being a female or
0: somebody of a different, um, different makeup or group. So people can take the information to their doctors and say, listen, this is what I understand. Can you help me create a plan of action? Exactly. For, for reducing my risk. Okay. So knowing that, what are some typical plans of action? I know, Dr. Sankasani, you've got like your PSA. Tell us about your PSA
1: um, <laughs> I usually have my, my PSA, I tell patients for heart disease, you know, the P is for prevention, right? There's a lot we can do, as we spoke about, to help control, you know, control what we can control. There's a lot we can control to decrease our chances of getting heart disease. And I, you know, I really encourage people to educate themselves and to make a plan that works for your life. And we'll talk about, you know, some things a little bit more specifically because as Dr. Bond mentioned, and I see in the chat, people are bringing up plant-based diets and I'm really excited to talk about that because it's something, you know, I'm trying to practice what I preach. So (laughs) my husband and I are actively doing that. So, you know, I say educate yourself on what you can do to prevent heart disease. The S is screening, right? Get with your doctor. Get with your doctor try and figure out how you can screen yourself properly, making sure you're checking your blood pressure, checking your waist circumference, as Dr. Bond said, knowing what your cholesterol, what your numbers are. And your doctor will actually use a calculator that we use in, in that's recommended by the American College of Cardiology to see what is your risk of heart disease over the next 10 years. And then they're gonna give you that percentage and then decide, do you need to be on a baby aspirin? Do you need to be on on statin or cholesterol medications that will decrease both your blood cholesterol and the amount of inflammation in your blood vessels? They'll let you know what your blood pressures are. Are you diabetic or pre-diabetic? What do you do about that? So those are different things that you won't be able to know without getting the appropriate screening. And then making that plan of action, right? So that A is for action to, to make that change that you really need to maintain a healthy diet. And the time to do it is now, right? If you're someone who smokes, as Dr. Bond said, stopping smoking today, your chances of heart disease will decrease dramatically. Why not do it today versus versus waiting, right? That risk, that incremental risk of smoking that additional cigarette is only going to hurt you. Um, so coming up with plans to actually figure out how to, how to achieve that goal, right? How to put that into action. Um, so that's usually my PSA, right? Prevention, screening, and then putting that plan together with your doctor. Um, so talking about that, that action plan, and Dr. Bond mentioned a lot about lifestyle changes as our first-line therapy, and that, that really is because there's so much we can do with diet. Um, a plant based diet or, or is what's recommended by the American College of Cardiology to decrease the risk of heart disease. And a lot of people look at me when I say that and they're like, "You want me to be a vegan?" I'm like, "Okay. <laughs> There's different options within a plant-based diet. Being a vegan is one, I wouldn't say extreme, but it's one option within that. You know, being vegan or vegetarian, but plant-based really means that you make fruits, vegetables, plants the the basis of the majority of what you're eating throughout the day. It doesn't mean you have to eliminate protein alts together, but it means that it become it doesn't become the focus of your meal. Right? Um and the reason we know that's helpful is that there's a lot of products like red meat or processed foods, like you know bacon, sausages, uh, you know deli meats, etc., that have a lot of uh, extra toxins in them that cause inflammation. And inflammation is a huge driver behind heart disease. So it's not just eating cholesterol and fat, but having this this environment within your body of inflammation. And plant-based diets that are based more on on fruits, uh, vegetables, etc have a lot less inflammation and a lot less cholesterol. So the two go hand in hand. There's also a lot of talk about the Mediterranean diet, which is another form of diet that is a is plant-based as well, but increases things like um, olive oil, like extra virgin olive oil or, or fish as, a, as the main form of protein that's considered more healthy than others. Um, and then things like beans, legumes, lentils, peas, things like that. Uh, so those those are you know when you when you know that something is healthy a lot of people will say oh that's not necessarily what we eat especially in in black culture it's not necessarily the kinds of foods that we're used to So when I speak to patients, I really have to go through and I'm like, okay, what do you eat for breakfast today? All right. How can we change that? How can we substitute that? Instead of eating three eggs, why don't you use egg whites or why don't you change to a veggie omelet instead of using bacon? Why don't you do this instead? Right. So trying to give people practical tips that can that can work for their everyday lives. If not, they're not going to do it. It's called a lifestyle change, not a diet. When I people say, I want to go idea. on a diet. I'm like Mm-mm. no. You
0: know when I think of the word diet, I say I see D I E, and I'm like that's diet. I don't I don't like that. <laughs> yes. Like I'm like lifestyle change. But that also brings me to my next question of we know that behavior change is really difficult. So mm-hmm. like how do you what do you tell your patients that need to modify their diets need to modify their act their lifestyles and encourage them like it's not gonna happen overnight, but it's incrementally like, what is your messaging to them? How do you help them with that?
2: Yeah, so as you said, it's not going to happen overnight. And that's why we wanna emphasize that it's something lifelong, right? And this is something that we shouldn't do just to improve numbers. And that's the last thing you wanna do is to make sure that your doctor's okay and happy on the next visit. You wanna make sure that you're living a healthy and long life. And one way to do that, is to get the whole family involved where it's not just focusing on yourself, but you're leading by example. If you're a mother or a father or your grandmother or grandfather, you wanna make sure that your whole entire family is living that healthy lifestyle. And that's usually for me, the conversations I'm having with my patients that here are the tools that we can provide to you, but let's make sure you provide those tools to your family. Because if you're healthy, they need to be healthy as well. And one important thing that I think is furthermore important to emphasize is that as women in general, we tend not to place our health at the very top. And we have to do a better job at doing that. You know, we put everybody before us, our children, our family, our pets, our colleagues, etc. And that's something that we, I think, need to do a better job in realizing that in order for the, those other people to be healthy, we have to be healthy ourselves. So that's the conversations I usually have within my practice.
0: Yes, and that is something that I wanna reemphasize as well. Like we're so busy as women, always taking care of everybody else, but we can't take care of others if we're not okay ourselves. So thank you for saying that. Cause I, I do think that is really, really important. Um, I do wanna get to, I know you got you have done an incredible job of answering questions. <laughs> Coming in because they've been coming in and I'm loving it. I'm really, really loving it. One of the most recent questions that somebody had has to do with, you know, they had a heart attack. And so this was a question is, what is a safe elevated heart rate while exercising for an individual that has survived a heart attack? And for anybody that has had a heart attack, what, what do you recommend when it comes to exercise?
1: So the first thing i would actually recommend for that person who's had a heart attack and is worrying about exercising is to look into cardiac rehabilitation programs in your area okay these are programs that have been proven to help decrease the risk of a second heart attack and increase your your physical fitness while you're under the direct care of a of a, of a physician so think about it like going to the gym with a the doctor there right so they'll be able to tell you what your safe what your levels of heart you know of, of what safe level of heart rate is specific for you and not just go off of something tailored so if you've had a heart attack and you're thinking about getting into an exercise program now, I would say look into cardiac rehabilitation as an option um, and, and, and work with your doctor specifically on a plan for you, okay? There are certain levels that we can look at for heart rates, right? There's certain math that we can do, like 220 minus your age times 85%, right? There's all these formulas. Um, but the simple rule is, you know, start slow. Your heart rate is going to go higher faster in the beginning. And then as you keep going, you'll notice that it takes longer for you to get to that same heart rate. That's endurance training or conditioning. Um, But I really do emphasize cardiac rehabilitation, especially if you've had a heart attack in the past, to really help decrease that risk of having a second event. Because that is, you know, a lot of people say, well, I've had a heart attack well, what is my chances of this happening again? Um, And things like Dr. Bond spoke about being on the cholesterol medication, being on a baby aspirin, and these are medications lifelong. That's another common question people ask. Oh, well, once I get on, you know, once I've had heart disease, how long do I need to be on my medication? For the rest of your life. And most people don't want to hear that. Once you've had a heart attack, you're taking baby aspirin from here on out. You know, there's someone in the chat who mentioned that she had heart failure after her kids were born. That's tough because these are women in their 30s and 40s, and you're talking about taking medication for 40, 50 years. Mm. Going, um, but that's the best thing for you going forward based on the data that we have now. Okay. Wow. Um-
2: and beyond that, with the importance of cardiac rehab is is not just going and, you know, getting enrolled, but it's actually completing it. Because what we have seen is that women in general are less likely to complete it. They are 100% less likely to be referred, but also less likely to complete it. And I think that has a lot to do with the unfortunate, the time constraints, the fact that it's usually during the work hours, and it may provide limitations. And that's something that every hospital system, I really do think, need to do a better job at realizing that there are moms out there that are working and or at home taking care of their children. We have to modify our ability to make sure that we're capturing them maybe on the weekends after work as an example. But I can't emphasize enough the importance of cardiac rehab. And for myself, specifically with my women's cardiovascular program, it's a wonderful collaboration that we have where they reduce rehospitalizations, We make sure patients are following up with their doctors regularly. They're taking their medications. And most importantly, they're learning the tools to live a normal, healthy life again, because you can live a healthy, normal life after a stroke, after a heart attack, after congestive heart failure. You can live a healthy life. It's just a matter of making sure you follow up with your clinicians regularly and follow the instructions in terms of taking medications
0: and, of course, eating healthy and exercising as well. Thank you for emphasizing that, because I do feel like people might feel as if, you know, they've had a heart attack, they've had this heart condition, and now it's done, especially knowing that it's starting a lot younger You know, for us it's like, oh, if I have it at 23, 24, like the rest of my life, I can't do anything. So thank you for, you know, making the viewers know that there's still life after dealing with any kind of heart condition what other resources do you all suggest or what do you all have going on that the viewers can now follow up and you know just feel confident that they have the resources? Like you all are saying, we should know how to talk to our doctors about what we're experiencing. What other resources do you suggest that we follow up on when it comes to learning more about our heart conditions?
2: Um, well, one thing I can stress, we talked a lot about plant-based diet, and through both the organizations that myself and um, Dr. San um are part of, it's called the Association of Black Cardiologists, and they have an amazing cookbook that actually is very plant-predominant, plant-focused, and it gives you the tools on how to eat a healthy diet, but most notably, it's very culturally sensitive, and I really love that, and I share it a lot with my African-American um, patients. Beyond that, through the Association of Black Cardiologists, where I am the current co-chair of our Women and Children's Committee, we're going to be doing an amazing event on Tuesday, March 9th, which is next Tuesday. And that's actually focused on maternal health. Why is that important? So one, one person in the chat box commented on the fact that they were diagnosed at a very early age with pregnancy-related heart failure. Beyond that, we know a lot of complications that occur during our pregnancy can disproportionately affect us in the future for heart disease. And we know specifically the United States is the only industrialized country that has the highest rates of death from pregnancy and that immediate postpartum period, even up to one year postpartum. And it affects disproportionately black women who are dying at three to four times the rate of their white female counterparts. So because of that, we wanted to join forces, knowing that heart disease is the leading cause of that death during pregnancy, with a lot of impactful leaders that are really trying to get the voice out there. So we encourage you to listen in. We're gonna have amazing discussions on how to reduce one's risk and really provide you that blueprint and tools to hopefully get you through the pregnancy and also future wise, make sure that you're in the hands of the right doctors, be it a cardiologist. So I'm really excited and hope you all can join in.
0: Yes. And i put it right here, the labor of love event. That is the link to register. Definitely check it out. It's going to be such a great event. And I think that it's going to be something that's going to help everybody get a, a more in-depth understanding of why it's so important for women to truly understand what is going on with their health. Dr. Sinkasani, do you have any resources that you would like to share with the viewers? Um, I know somebody had put in the chat earlier, actually, about how do we get our young girls, young Black girls to get into this field so that there's more amazing women like you having these conversations with us.
1: Yes, I think you have to lead by example, right? The more we we more we put ourselves out there. And that's why, you know, it's five o'clock. And I, I could be when, when when we started and I was like, man, should I should I do this show or should we be heading home to our family? And the reason is to to show you know mothers out there and, and people who are watching this that yes there are black female cardiologists throughout the country and we're trying to make a difference for black women um and then and then having them tell their children right and and, and encouraging them into this field uh, we've got to do a lot with with earlier education um trying to convince younger black individuals and in schools that they are this is something that's attainable for them you know so if they if you can't see it you don't believe it mm-hmm. and so that that's that's really important and that's one of my passions is is teaching and educating and hopefully building up the next generation of people who can go out and 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 help to change the face of cardiovascular disease for black women going forward it's 49 statistic over the age of 50 has to ch- or the age of 20 sorry has to change and yeah. so we need to work together to make that happen
0: Yeah, no, that statistic is very scary. And I'm just so grateful to both you, Dr. Sankasani, and you, Dr. Bond, for dropping so much knowledge during this conversation and being so willing to educate this audience and educate all of us and make us feel that we can advocate for our own health. We can have the conversations. There are things that we can do to modify our risk for heart disease and that there is hope that that 49% will go down. And there is hope that more people will be aware that it's not breast cancer that's killing us, it's actually cardiovascular disease. Um, So I'm so grateful, I just wanna say thank you. Is there any way, if people wanted to follow you, how they can follow you online, follow your work? Tell tell us how we can connect you with the people.
1: (laughs) I work for Jackson Health System, so jacksonhealth.org. Our cardiology group is located at the uh, main medical campus here in Miami. And uh, we're definitely willing to to help uh, our community in, in the local area, but at large and definitely as well. So thank you guys for joining. Hopefully this was educational and, and, and helpful. And uh, you know, I'd love to see people in the office for education and prevention, not necessarily as patients. We wanna lower that rate. But if you're someone with heart disease, please see your cardiologist. Please see them regularly and please continue to do the things that we can. Right. Remember my PSA, prevent, screen and act. And you really need to do that in order to decrease your risk long term.
2: Yeah. And for myself, beyond my health system, I am um, very, uh, very much on social media and I use that as a platform where I do provide a lot of education. So you can feel free to follow me on Twitter or Instagram or even on Facebook at Dr. D-R, Rachel, R-A-C-H-E-L, M as in Marie Bond, B-O-N-D. And there you'll find a whole lot of information, a lot of which was centered on our conversation today, but also any other events that I may be participating in. Um, I do echo Dr. Sankasani's statement that we need to increase the pipeline and we need to get more women in our field, specifically women of color. And I'm really encouraged by this. And thank you so much, Jimmy, for reaching out because I think what you're doing is also amazing that you're really providing, again, these tools that our, our community really needs to figure out how to advocate for themselves and best provide quality care. So I do thank you again for reaching
0: out and I look forward to hopefully doing another one of these
2: really soon.
0: Absolutely. Thank you all again. Thank you for joining. Make sure you tune in to Dr. Bond's event next Tuesday again. Um, And I appreciate you all. Have a wonderful rest of your Thursday. I will see you again next week at 2 p.m. Pacific time, 5 p.m. Eastern time. Jump in with Jumi. Thank you all. Bye. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Bye.